0: Thank you. I want to thank The Gate for, The Gate, my favourite theatre on earth, more or less, as a Stradivarius-like space, um, for having us here a second time. And, um, and I want to thank publicly, my own, or express my ongoing thanks to Marcella Bannon and Sarah Bannon uh, for looking after me in this uh, interesting, challenging, and rather wonderful period of my life as Laureate. Um, I've written, I wrote, I took the trouble of going to Teddington to write this uh, lecture, to to get a bit of distance, because in its own way it's it's quite difficult, and I, I don't think I truly thought in such detail about this part of my life for a long time. But it just so happens that it's 20 years uh, since Donald McCann died. And um, I, I'm with Einstein on the theory of time, though I'm not sure. Uh, there is such thing as narrative time or time going by. And if we could only just walk through the right door, we might still find those people whom, whom we adore and continue to adore, difficult as they may have been. And it's called Still Life with Donald, for reasons I hope will become briefly obvious. Unfortunately for you, I have to briefly, I'm going to briefly begin with a scrap of his favourite song while I knew him. I don't think it would be his favourite song while I'm singing it, but you know. (laughs) Uh, I did see him in the dressing room, in in, in the green room, in, in photograph form, and I got a bit of a... My God, can I really sing this before I speak about him? But I will anyway, fearlessly. (laughs) Would you know my name When I see you in heaven Would it be the same When I see you in heaven I must be strong and carry on, cause I know I don't belong here in heaven. It's another life. It's another life. We're living in North Great Georgia Street. It's 1994. David Norris is our benign landlord and has been for five years. Being elected to Astone in 1989 had finally allowed us consistently to pay rent, which has been a great boon. Another boon in the shape of the curious tornado, the wonderful catastrophe that was the birth of twins, has come in 1992, asking probing questions nonetheless about our vulnerable economy. Ali has stopped working as an actress to give all her time and self to those babies. I have had a play put on in London for the first time in the year of their birth, but After a short canter at the Bush Theatre and then at the Peacock in Dublin, that has contributed only its modest halfpence. But we're not downhearted, and in truth we know no better. Personally, at this time, I think it will always be so, leaping stepping stone by stepping stone across the wide, stormy isthmus of a working life. I hope one day to buy a broken cottage in Mayo and for us all to live frugally there. That seems a perfectly admirable and justifiable life, if a little uncertain for the babies." The year after the children's coming has been a new sort of time. So many things have changed. It's not just myself and Ali battling along, shoring each other up. She does most of the shoring. There has also been the strange ballet of the babies sleeping, or not sleeping so much for the first seven months, or at least sleeping according to their own mysterious rules. It has been a mighty seesaw in and out of bed for their novice parents. First baby up. Merry and hungry feed the critter back down to sleep and then the little leg of second baby stirring, lifting in the cot. Second baby, merry and hungry for a stretch, then sleeping, first baby's leg lifting again. (laughs) There have been times in the dark night in North Great Georgia Street when we have passed them to each other like rugby balls with the vigor of a good Irish forward, even in the deep crease of sleeplessness when we have cursed, if not them, then each other. We had spent seven years together with barely a cross word, as I remember it. Now we perfected a few insults in the cold crucible of the night. One of the best we memorialised and often repeated later, you piece of human excrement. Which of us fashioned that, I can't recall. Bleary-eyed, I would wheel them out into the dawn to allow them take the air in the Royal Canal Basin, an alley to sleep, to sleep. She was breastfeeding like a champion, indeed also like a curious rugby player, except running with two ovals at the same time. (laughs) We were well nigh paralysed by exhaustion. Then we moved the twins' cot into my old workroom at the back of the flat, and I bought two child-rearing books, one American and one English. The English one said you had to go in when your baby cried at night, it would be un-British not to do so. The American one said that the father should hover at the door looking through the keyhole and let the baby cry the first night, then it would be less the second night, that mama should not be allowed to go in, and that soon, soon your baby would would be sleeping like all the other babies in the neighborhood. I went with the Yankee book. The first night, indeed, I did not sleep myself, but stood watchman at the door. When one child cried, Allie appeared all cloaked in sleepiness. If her arms had been outstretched like a sleepwalker, I would not have been surprised. Each time she appeared speechless and answering an ancient imperative, I turned her gently around in the corridor and nudged her back towards her bed. That first night, Carl cried for 40 minutes, then stopped. I could see her twisting the surface of the sheet tinily, teaching herself to sleep. The next night, Marilyn cried for 15 minutes. It's okay, Ali. Turn around. Back you go. Then the third night, an epochal silence. Sleeping babies. I set up the monitor and climbed into bed. At six, I woke like a creature redoused in humanity. A night's sleep. Would I ever experience it again? Oh, wonder the same the next night. Miraculous. Now, when the older ladies on O'Connell Street peered into the buggy and remarked on how delightful the twins were, ah, Jesus, aren't they just lovely? I didn't nod and privately think, but they have ruined our lives, but now nodded and spoke aloud in wondering agreement, delightful. Champion babies, champion sleepers. God bless America. In the era of the sleeplessness, I had been trying to fulfill a play contract from Max Stafford Clark at the Royal Court that he had commissioned in the utterly different days before the babies. He had seen the halfpenny earning bush play and thought he might like to commission me. That was a happy day. I met him in his office in the court. As I came in, he was talking to someone on the phone, clearly a tricky conversation. That, said Max, setting the receiver back down, was Edward Bond. Sends a play every year. Always have to turn him down. I nodded in youthful ignorance of this most likely fate of older playwrights. I was 37 and Max was not turning me down, the necessary stupidity of 37. Oh yes, we spoke about what I thought I wanted to do, a strange play about a great-grandfather who had been chief superintendent of the old DMP before independence with three daughters and a son lost in World War One. Max had just done a King Lear-like play somewhere recently in the English provinces, so this appealed to him. I left his office, still marginally sorry for Edward Bond, but of course, hogging my own good fortune, hurried down into Sloan Square and back into a phone box, rang Alley. he wants to commission it. Then the babies and the sleepless nights and I tried to write the play, sleep or no sleep, but I began to realize something. The reason you have something coherent to write in the morning is because you have been preparing it somehow in dreams the night before, but if you have no space for dreams and sleep you will write a very curious and very very useless subtext or supertext or some damn thing that is not a play. Then the Yankee baby book, then suddenly sleep, then suddenly the play came, almost whole and entire. It was a matter of writing it down and not in a way very useful to Allie. I would be working in our bedroom since the babies had evicted me, and only a few minutes after I would go in and close the door, it seemed, she would knock and say, please, please, come and help me with the babies. But I've only been here a moment. Bear, bear, for that was my nickname. She would say, it's been eight hours. Scandalous, and so the play was written. The fabulous juggling with babies continued. I delivered the play to Max and then went again to London to talk about it. He was fairly enthusiastic, not hugely. (laughs) You talked about it better than you wrote it, I seem to remember him saying. I was happy to take the temperature he was lending it because I had no great expectations. I had read the play to Ali in bed and she had said after a few pages, this is something new for you. So this new had to be encountered and understood. As always, it might be a pile of malodorous nonsense. You just have to leave room for that possibility. I did some work on the play and sent it off again by post, a typescript in an envelope. And then there was a certain amount of silence, a certain kind of silence, the silence of uncertainty the other end. Max was just coming to the end of his time at the Royal Court as artistic director, oftentimes triumphant, oftentimes tempestuous. He was there, but not there in the manner of prime ministers and presidents at the end of their offices. Then he wrote to me and said he didn't think he could direct it and and would give it over to the new people at the court. And in due course, I heard that one of the directors would give it a rehearsed reading, but that he thought it was a pretty static play. This moved me to tell my agent to say that I wanted her to take the playback. In the same moment I rang Max and asked him if he couldn't direct the play. Could he at least look after it at the court? I'm not sure what I meant, except I could sense I was now occupying that difficult but familiar niche, the halfpenny place, and was no doubt standing on my dignity as a method of surviving that. You have to try and protect the tiny centre of confidence or other more permanent dooms await the strange pride of the beggar man but Max immediately said he would, yes he would look after it certainly in a sudden rush of comradeship. I remember walking in my father-in-law's little wood in Mayo and thinking well Bugger this for a profession. Would it be too late now to join the army, as my grandfather had urged me? (laughs) The British army, indeed. The merciless and unfathomable exchange of hatreds burned and roared ever deeper and longer in the north. So it was in every way a crazy thought. But the hapenny place is a great prompter to absurdity. I was thinking of the price of nappies, of baby food, of baby clothes, of creches, of schools, of possible ponies, of universities, of and of my apparent inability so far to do anything but write, even if it was just to write pretty static plays. <laughs> From that point on, something a little mysterious happened. Max seemed more and more inclined not only to look after the steward of Christendom, but to take it to himself. He was setting up a new theatre company with Sonia Friedman called Out of Joint. Some 20 years before, he had worked with an Irish actor called Donham McCann, and he thought he might just send the script to Donham. What did I think? I said, yes, please do but with private misgivings. Donal McCann, I I knew he was a great drinker, and I was not a fan of drinkers in the main. My grandmother had drunk herself to death. My grandfather narrowly escaped that when he gave it up in the 50s. My father was a drinker. When I mentioned Donal's name in Dublin, some said with that special tone reserved for complicated rivalries among actors that his work had grown mannered. I had some tricky memories of encountering Donal myself. Once in the abbey foyer, I had seen him crawl vertically along a wall, if that is possible, <laughs> using the wall for a reference as if the entire abbey were pitching in a great tempest. I suppose his life was a great tempest, mostly. I thought it was a sorrowful sight. For Donald was blatantly an actor of singular greatness. It was just the drinking, the drinking, the astonishing and old-fashioned drinking. Tales of him drinking all day in a certain bar and being locked into the premises by the barman at night with twenty double vodkas lined up for him on the counter. The peculiar murderous kindness of a barman, then him being released at dawn and down to the markets with him where the bars open for the star-lit traders. Drinking of a kind, I wonder, does it even exist now in that many, many drank like that, many Irish artists, actors, writers, the lost drinkers of the 20th century. I think of it as wild grown-up drinking of a kind so beyond me I feel almost ashamed to admit it. Manly, womanly, epic Irish drinking, giving rise to wonder tales and catastrophes just averted. But I was familiar with stories like those, literally, in my own family, and was also aware of the scars and horrors visited on those around the drinker. No, I was not a fan of it, or of drinkers, and maybe so, didn't really want him in my play, my my pretty static play. Also, (laughs) he was only 52, and the character of Thomas Dunn was in his early 70s. Could even, a Donald McCann, make that leap? I was worried, I was worried, though I knew behind all this, in the dark anteroom of reason, that I was looking a gift horse in the mouth, and anyway, he mightn't want to do it. This was the man who had specialised in Sean O'Casey and Brian Friel, after all, and Anton Chekhov, as translated by Friel. But I did remember some other things now. Meeting Donald one time in a cramped pub on a street called The Hill behind North Great Georgia Street, accidentally, him coming into the bar with his grungy regality, standing suddenly, well it was sudden though he moved not beside me, saying nothing, saying nothing, till he announced in his conversation murdering way, I'm afraid of you, not an iota of fear in his voice. Why so, I said, appalled, affrighted, I'm afraid of you, I'm afraid of you, he said as if repeating would make it clear what he meant. <laughs> well, I said in a mix of genuine fright and dubious arrogance, I hope some day we will work together, you and I. Humph, he said with maximum ambiguity. <laughs> he managed to get little messages to me over the years in that Dublin grapevine way. Donald McCann says that Prayers of Sharkin, another play of mine in 92, is a masterpiece. Oh, I thought, did he say that? How bloody wonderful. In the time that Ali and I lived in David Norris's house with the babies, the first babies born on the street for 40 years we were told by lovely epic Patty Duffy in her shop on Parnell Street, we were in the era of BM, before mobiles, and we still relied mainly on the squatting phone in the sitting room. One afternoon this creature stirred and I answered and it was a gruff Dublin voice on the other end. You've been stealing my childhood stuff off the radio. You've been listening to me talking on the radio about my childhood and you've robbed it. This said with proper force and burning accusation as you might in a violent court case. Who is this? I said in my best South Dublin tone, neither revealing that I was offended or at the same time borrowing his venom. There was a long breathing pause and then a strange laughter. Not the laughter of people at ease together, but an altogether different, private, singular laughter. It's Donal! Then I was searching in my mind for Donals I knew. I didn't think it was ever gentle Donal O'Kelly who had been in Prayers of Shurkin. And anyway, maybe I knew who this was. My slow brain, always brotherly when it comes to stupidity, even my slow brain was putting two and two together. Oh, Donal, I said. Donald, as if the word Donald was the answer to some complicated (laughs) mathematical equation worthy of William Rowan Hamilton walking along the Royal Canal and suddenly scratching the principle of Quaternion multiplication on a bridge i squared, j squared is equal to k squared, i, j, k, minus one, thereby by many years later allowing a rocket to reach the moon and there was a triumph in saying it, Donald! Meet me in the step-down inn at three tomorrow, he said, with a suddenly conspiratorial tone in, as it were, perfect friendship now, now that the theft of his childhood material had been mentioned, put in the open, and dealt with. (laughs) Let's be clear, Ali and I revered him. The step down in was only a few yards from our basement gate on North Great Georgia Street and Donal, as it happened, stepped first down our stairs to collect me on the appointed day and no doubt put his immortal hand out to ring our bell and on the door being opened came into our dark corridor and was briefly in the hall. I was kerfuffling about to get ready and he had a few Donal-esque words with Ali who had worked many times in the Abbey Theatre and indeed had played the lead in Prayers of Shurkin beautifully. Then he turned about and went back up the street to wait for me. Ali gripped my arm, or did I grip hers, and said, or did I say, Donald McCann was in our house. Either way, that was the degree of reverence we had for him and the measure of our awe, just to be clear. The radio interview reference was duly explained. It was his way of emphasizing the connection he had made in the synapses of his own mind with the country matters in the play, the hens, the eggs, the cow, the calves, the dog, the pony and trap the high lamp to light you along the green roads and the metalled ways in the old gone blazing days of memory. We sat there among the local drinkers some of them with their children playing outside on the pavement waiting for Ma and Da in the dusky sunlight and talked together for about two or three hours although I have no medals for being relaxed in human company I was a virtue version of relaxed with him because anyway he was talking directly into the very heart of my private imagination. He was setting us up as strange brothers, or maybe a more filial arrangement. He assumed a sort of familiar connection in which he never wavered. Whether it was real, true or accurate was not the point. He was doing it to connect himself to this play he was going to do, even though I doubt he was ever during rehearsals 100% sure it would work on stage. There was something in it he thought he needed, some corroboration of his own secret self, of course a secret self that he was always prepared to reveal in the strange public privacy of the stage. I knew immediately he was the most serious hombre I had ever spoken to. If I wasn't terrified, I was at least elevated into an extreme watchfulness or concentration. He wasn't like an actor as such with the fears and attributes of an actor. He had a sort of shamanistic certainty to to him, an absoluteness, a one time only, the most important thing on earth is good writing atmosphere about him. To sit with him in those circumstances was to feel the hoops of a kind of steely love being bound about your person, and you were grateful for that if also constricted. His growling gravelly Dublin voice hewed out of the smoke of a million cigarettes with its faithful homage to a vanished Brent, Brendan Bean, and a thousand and one nights drinking that utterly grown up drinking as I said that I knew I would never be eligible to attempt. I had never met anyone like him nor ever did again. He was drinking what he now called a Donald McCann half Britvic orange and half fizzy water in a pint glass not a drop of alcohol in it in fact, he had recently done the voiceover for the ad for Ballygowan, though that might have been coincidental. <laughs> Much to my surprise, he had been dry for three or four years. Maybe this was a different Donald then. It was 1994, deep in the year, and we were to start rehearsals in London in March. Still life, Ballygowan. No other water. No other Donald. Donald may have been 53, but his hair knew nothing about it. He had dense, black, thick hair capping his head like a protective helmet cut close like on the Greek statue of an athlete. His main expression was one of concentration and general fierceness. He had by some life alchemy turned a permanent frown into an appealing glare. He was not sartorially inclined. His His trues were more or less a defrocked priest's idea of casual wear. He inclined to a tatty jumper over a shirt of long service. This was rehearsal room garb and over the years it has been interesting to me to observe what actors wear to work as it were. There is something in the degree of downplaying your clothes that relates to the upplaying of the text. If you wear the least of your items the gods might favour you with those inches and ashes and sparks of discovery. It was my first time working with Max Stafford Clark and although we went on to try to push out three other plays, I think he might agree this was the heyday of our connection. Max and indeed Donald too, always put me in mind of those Russian icon makers who were content simply to honor their gods by painting them well and not stoop to signing the icons. Real work in the theatre, those real hours composed of extraordinarily compressed moments, planetary burning alert, brings out the best in its great artists. You are in the presence of the individual at their most sublime. This is just a fact. Tina Kelleher played the part of Annie in The Steward of Christendom. In effect, a younger version of my own great aunt Annie, my favorite person on earth as a child, even my grandfather's coming second to her. Tina, like Donald, didn't come into the play to discharge the duty of a part and then go home. She was as focused as the arrows of Cupid. She was about that mysterious business of striking into the human heart without wounding it, which is the business of great acting. I mention her because it often seemed in the following years that only Donald McCann was in that play, and yet there was a cast of seven or eight. Slowly, during rehearsals, the crucible of Max and Donal refined and condensed their efforts into beautiful work. Condensed like stars, both collapsing and expanding, it mattered not which. That was true, but there were other miracles. Playing the mostly unpleasant orderly Smith, who at one stage brings a bowl of stew for Thomas was Kieran Ahern, who was not only liked by Donald, but more importantly, maybe had himself an acute understanding of Donald's sometimes astringent mood on stage. Kieran gave Donald carte blanche in the matter of moods and both absorbed and ignored everything as it served the play. As a reward, Donald truly liked him, as I say, even if sometimes when Kieran was radiantly reading out the old letter from the trenches that the steward's son had sent him years before. Donal would mutter in that strange stage communication between actors that audiences can't for some reason hear, hurry up! (laughs) Perhaps his final reward for this majesty and patience was Donal's inspired description of Kieran, the man who put the stew into the steward of Christendom. (laughs) But the main astral physics was going on between Donal and Max. Donald considered Max to be the greatest living English theatre director. Max privately opined to me that in fact he had to believe that because otherwise Donald could not have come to work with him again. They had worked together 20 years before on Tom Kilroy's translation of the seagull and this is why Max had felt he could send the steward to Donal in the first place. 20 years in the theatre can seem like an afternoon to its practitioners and Donal had maintained his high opinion of Max for its strange duration. Max was famous for what is called his actioning which comprises himself and the actor working out an active verb for every sentence in the part. This verb is then noted in your script and referred to as required. It is Max's way of anchoring the actor and lightly pinning the text to a sort of rescuing sense. Donald, dutifully, manfully, respectfully, sat down the other side of the rehearsal table on the first day and gamely, nobly, seriously, generously, began this process with Max, and I am trying to remember how long this lasted, but I would be surprised if it went beyond an hour. (laughs) <laughs> Dornal couldn't work like that partly because his part was composed of many long speeches and perhaps in the upshot there was only one active verb for each entire speech. And he had not learned his part as such before rehearsal, but for a very good reason. He didn't allow himself to. He wanted to let it learn itself. He wanted the surprises and mysteries of that osmosis. He had sat with the script for a thousand hours already in his little house in Glasnevin where he lived with his partner Fidel McCullen, the gentlest woman in Ireland. The script was scrawled in, neatly written on, much coffee cupped or maybe tea cupped, scuffed, folded, no doubt when he had stuffed it into his outrageously elderly leather jacket, like all his clothes obliged to do permanent service, as if a man could by law only ever purchase one jacket per life. It was thrilling for a writer to go to this house in the months before rehearsal as an extension of the program begun in the step down in. In fact, for the veritable cross-pollination between his imagination and mine and, and my own and view this ferociously attended to document which you had written, thrown carefully to his side on the couch as he variously watched the races at Sandown or the Curragh or wherever the horses were running that day, threw remarks back over his right shoulder to Fidelma, who might be scanning the papers at their table, or offered to me his opinions of things he was reading, Colin McCann's tiny story watching the slow black river about mothers fishing for their sons being a discovery I remember him expounding on for a space much longer than the actual story. It was utterly thrilling. Even to go to his house and not find him there yet was an adventure. I remember wandering into the old graveyard while waiting for him and finding myself not among the heroes of 1916, who were there somewhere eternally, but among the heroic souls of the Angel's Acre, the little plot for babies and children, the continuing continuing love for whom was marked by rainy teddy bears and dewy flowers. It was as if to be in the vicinity of, near the village of Donald brought revelations in and of itself. I also knew that somewhere in the graveyard was the unmarked grave of my great grandfather. No one knew where, the very man we were seeking to dis- disentire in the theatre. These many hours spent together had completed a certain sort of work for him. Now he was going fishing with Max, even if Max was suddenly obliged to take a new tack as regards actioning. So I was both required and redundant, but both conditions with a positive charge. Max was keen for the writer to be there every day of rehearsal, which meant six weeks in London, Ali and the babies at home in Dublin. Ali lifting, sorting, feeding, changing, harding, cajoling, teaching, amusing those babies, and thankfully getting them to sleep at night for the rescue of her own dreams. Although I had been made a member of stone and we could pay our rent as a consequence, as I say, nevertheless money was tight, nappies and jars of baby food are dear. I suppose there must have been a rehearsal stipend from out of joint. Max's producer, the majestic Sonia Friedman, didn't expect her writers to live on air, but we were rehearsing to go into a space with only 60 seats, and in the theatre upstairs at the Royal Court, even if we managed to make the play go, no one was going to get rich. As a consequence, Donal, after rehearsal, would always inquire where I was going to get my dinner. And if I occasionally didn't seem 100% sure, he would shove a few quid into my hand and I would go and get a reviving McDonald's. At the weekend, he had me come over to his modest digs in immodest Chelsea. Donal had many attributes. He loved drawing. He loved taking photographs. He loved to do the occasional bit of journalism. He was obviously the king of all kings among actors, but truly one of his most imperial gifts was as a maker of Irish stew, the man who put the stew. I don't know on what day of the week this stew was first made, but it likely served him for the duration. Like his clothes, his diet was unvarying and simple and well-proved. I am not saying that this was the greatest stew ever made as regards cuisine as such, but you see, it was Donald's stew. It was the thing he had fashioned with his own hands. It was a magician's victual. Just lamb or mutton, maybe, potatoes and carrots. If there was seasoning in it, it was just salt and pepper. It was exactly the same stew my great Aunt Annie, now played by Tina, had made for us as children in the tiny cottage in Kelchebeg, now an important locus in this very play and rehearsal, except Donald sported more meat. Annie could only could afford a few lumps of mutton at the bottom of the pot for the man who was working, say, but not for children. We had only got the essence, the aroma, the floating fat of the lamb as children eating from the pot, like a very metaphor for a writer's memory. This was Donal, the great bird of Donal, and he had slipped me under his wing for all sorts of unfathomable reasons. The day came when Donald felt obliged to shave his splendid hair as a preparation to play Thomas Dunn, who was, after all, in his seventies and not likely to sport that dense helmet. He was at a particular point in the meticulous exhumation of Thomas Dunn, retrieving a lost man from the devil's acre of Irish history, as it were. The character, as I said, was based on a great grandfather who had served in the Dublin Metropolitan Police before independence, a troubling ancestor shrouded in unwelcome history. He had been among the officers notoriously arresting James Larkin in Sackville Street in a worrying photograph at the time. Even his descendants didn't know where exactly he was buried. Both his family and history had quietly ditched him, it seemed. Years after the show, my beloved friend Dermot Bulger helped me find him using the new search technology in Glasnevin. He had been lying there all along in an unmarked grave, just a few bones, no doubt, under a dusty nowhere, just hard by where Donal used to live. By then I wasn't able to tell Donald about it, but it would have given him a somewhat medieval satisfaction. His job, as he saw it, was not to have an opinion about Thomas in any shape or form, but to become him to become him without grace or favor, without regret or condemnation or judgment. Even though in his personal politics, Donald's identification was entirely with the working person, the so-called common man and woman, and the radiant citizen, and indeed the workless person, on his way to rehearsals, he never passed the man begging on Hungerford Bridge without giving him a fiver, a tenner, to become Thomas. This process he achieved, I realized, perhaps only years later, with the most patient, inching, unhurried, radical confidence in not only what he was doing, but in what the ether around him was doing, conspiring with himself and Max and all the other actors and officers of the play. We had been shown the most gorgeous designs and lighting plans to bring what might be seen as an essentially artificial object to play to essentially otherworld and magical life. It was an incremental assault almost imperceptible, like the slow coming of new fresh weather across a winter benighted landscape, so much so that coming into our last week of rehearsal, now rehearsing in the theater itself, when the new artistic director of the court came to see a ragged run through, he told Max that, while he thought it was fine. He saw no big performance there. Max, with the grim satisfaction of the experienced boxer, told me this grimly. So then I merely hoped we might survive the three weeks in the 60-seater theater without too much shame. My fear, as you can imagine, was that the play would not be good enough, ultimately, for Donald and that it would let him down. Then your only hope is to get out of Dodge without too many fatal bullets lodged in your backside. At that moment, it seemed that might be the best ambition. But Max worked on meticulously, marking his own script with his tiny writing. He was so impressive in his Russian doggedness. Certainly, Max and Donal had forensically entered into every sentence of the play. Very little had been changed, but the little changes were like a vaccine to the fever of an unknown text. I suppose, in truth, Max had secretly actioned the text, or shall we say, with high diplomacy. Max had an utter respect for Donal, and he believed that Donal was the greatest actor he had ever worked with. Nevertheless, even the Lamb of God needs a shepherd. Just as Donal had let the script both just as Donald had let the script both talk to him and yet lie low. His performance at this point was lying low. If Max was concerned, he said nothing. On they worked, syllable by syllable. It's worth noting that the one actor in the company who perhaps hadn't been convinced about the play looked at the very same showing that hadn't quite impressed the artistic director, at least in Max's sobering tally very pale afterwards and was overwhelmed by Donald. That's my grandfather, she said, weeping. Oh, I see what I'm in now. And yet, it was probably best on balance to hope for the best and prepare for the worst, as they say. This is why theatre is so difficult and challenging and requires lorry loads of mensch like courage, which I have sometimes found, I must admit, only in thimblefuls in myself. Meanwhile, in the interest of stew and ongoing nourishment, Donald brought his shaved head into his local shop and hoiked a bag of potatoes onto the counter. The shopkeeper contemplated the shaved head, the unshaven cheeks, the awful leather jacket, the crumpled clothes, and making a monetary calculation, a humanitarian gesture, a gesture of social charity, said he could sell the potatoes singly to Donal if he needed. <laughs> Perhaps another soul might have been offended. Donal took it as a fierce authentication of his new self as Thomas. In the rehearsal room, Donald was now finding dozens of vivid moments everywhere in his performance. Many things I witnessed and was delighted by, only for the gesture or the inflection, the whole discovery to have been discarded overnight and replaced with a new wonder or rigorously pruned away. I wanted to beg him to keep certain things, but I had learned long ago not to second thought an actor. And of course, those poisonous nerves developing to an intolerable pitch as we neared our opening night. Previews didn't calm the nerves much. I am sure on the phone home to Ali, I was gloomy enough. Probably not welcome news to a person juggling two two-year-olds, dawn to dusk, her bloody absent partner seemingly coming a cropper in London, pennilessness, McDonald's, rocky previews, oh my heavenly Jesus. Brian Friel came in and our mutual agent told me he had some reservations. Mm. My lovely friend... My lovely friend. (laughs) Billy Roach, at that time the most important new voice in Irish theatre on the London stage, seemed to hold my arm a little pityingly in the pub afterwards. (laughs) I sensed his sympathy and his fear for me. I thought, here we go, over the waterfall, into the abyss. I was wondering, was there a shop in theatre land that would sell the appropriate life jacket? Would anyone mind if I suddenly emigrated to a country without English language newspapers? but something else was happening. The old BBC arts program Kaleidoscope came into the third preview and issued an injunction to London to hurry, hurry to the steward of Christendom. On the day we opened, the AD went down to get the evening standard and the vendor said, handing it over with a very early review of the play in it, I think you'll be all right with this one, Gov. As I am constitutionally unable to sit in with an audience at one of my plays, I was somewhat in the dark as to what had occasioned this enthusiasm. Maybe it was just an anomalous flare-up before the deluge came down in our heads, but something else, something strange, something that was the answer to the slow, deliberate questioning that Donal had made of the play. Who are you? What are you? How do I become you? Sit in you, make you sing and cry bit by bit? Was happening? Maybe happening was the right word in a John Lennon sort of way. This is not a play, declared Donal. I know what it is. It's a performance piece. For him, I could intuit, it was certainly not a play. It was a conduit or a system of complicated many-colored wiring back into the past and deep into his own bright dark self. His purpose was somehow by doing this play to resolve the great unresolvable thicket, the muddled wool basket of self at the very heart of him. The distressing matters that had no doubt led him to drink so fiercely, consummately even, and that now in his oddly sainted sobriety was there even more fiercely to be rawly contemplated, understood, included, and by this means withheld, stopped from killing him. For Donal, as his friend Stephen Ray once said to me, doing a play was life and death. He didn't perform in your play. He used his selected text as a slippery manual of retrieval and ultimate survival, like the awful instructions for some impossible homemade rocket. He placed himself in this veritably toxic nuclear stew of memory and reference, thereby by miraculous courage to remake himself, and in doing so bizarrely almost, but certainly wonderfully, bring back from the cold hand of ordinary death a character both unmissed, with no known grave, but also in being showed in all, shown in all his ambiguity and contradiction by this alchemy of Donald, suddenly in theatre form understood, humanly seen, loved by the audience. And as a consequence, all our efforts, the effort to write the play, After the wonderful catastrophe of the twins and Max's effort to marshal everything like a stoic general and the inspirations and flashes of genius of Tina and Kieran and the rest were suddenly rewarded by a cascade of praise and joyous welcome and extravagant high talk. Make no mistake, it was because of Donal. But he included us in his triumph. He implicated us in it. And it was an astonishing moment to reach. At that moment, they could have given him the Nobel Prize for almost any division, physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, astrophysics. We came to the Gate Theater, an Irish play funded by the British Council to tour in Ireland. Such was the grace and hope of the approaching peace. We toured the Antipodes, we had a second season in Dublin and then went to New York. We had many adventures with the play that we never got tired of relating and repeating to ourselves. The night President Mary Robinson came to see it at the gate. She was scheduled to come backstage afterwards to talk to Donal. Many minutes went by. He was in his tatty dressing gown and he hadn't had a chance to take off his makeup and have a wash and now here he was being delayed. He was sitting in the, act- in the actress' steam of afterwards, an ember of the great fire of the performance that needed something poured on it, if not now alcohol, at least his famous Britvick and water pint glass. Where in the name of Jesus was she? Donald's patience, which could be infinite, was often preceded by an immense brewing impatience. In this he was bewilderingly back to front. You could be happy to be out of his way in those moments. But the president was worth waiting for, surely, and he admired her. He was willing to sit there, waiting, waiting, up to a point. (laughs) At last, the front of house man, heroically immune to the moods of great actors, brought her in. She was so sorry, but she had been deeply moved by the play. She explained that she had needed a good ten minutes in the loo to straighten her mascara. Donald Darkly, sitting there, glaring, benignly, immensely pleased. Another night, Donald even in the total concentration of carrying such a part as the steward. Even Lear gets to take a piss, he pointed out to me. (laughs) Yes, even as he navigated the long speeches and the beautiful lighting changes and the whole rally-like voyage to other worlds and times and wrestled with his daughters and missed his daughter Dolly and spoke of eggs and cows and uniforms and loyalties and finally the dog who was let live, nevertheless noticed that at the center of the auditorium there was an empty seat. We were a sold-out show, and it really vexed him to see this one empty seat in a ten-week run. He was actually outraged. The same Ulyssian front-of-house man was summoned to his dressing room afterwards. He was obliged to breast this barely-controlled fury of an esteemed actor. I'm really sorry, Donal. We had a busload of pensioners coming up from the Midlands. I'm afraid there was a problem with one of them at the last minute that resulted in the empty seat. I'm truly sorry. What problem? What problem? said Donald, committed to his annoyance. And if he had been obliged to supply a verb in actioning, it would have been wounds. He, he was on the cusp of even greater fury, probably a fury that would melt the Arctic ice cap. The gentleman in question, I'm afraid. Yes! Well, yes! Died, Donald, he died. <laughs> Just for a moment, it seemed the fury might blaze up anyway. Donald considered this for a burning moment. Was it really an adequate excuse? Mere death. An empty seat. All right, all right, maybe it was. All right, he said. My condolences to the family. I'll be sure and pass them on, said the (laughs) hero. I wasn't there, but that might have been the gist of it. He was as alert to historical moments as he was to empty seats. The play had premiered between the IRA ceasefires of the mid-90s. Donal was deeply concerned not to claim any political significance for the play, which he thought would be most insensitive and offensive We'll say nothing about that, he said to me sternly. I took my orders. A year later, the play, as I say, transferred to the Brooklyn Academy and Newsweek duly called Donal one of the greatest living actors. And so he was, great and living and immense. And I still long, even after 20 years, for him to be so living, still in life, full of life and gold light, still there, mid-stage, right, growling, hurry up, eternally. Before that happened, He had been down in Australia touring the play Max and Sonia had been offered a 15 week run on Broadway but Donald rang me from Sydney to say he couldn't face that and would I please understand it would be 8 shows a week and he didn't think he could survive that I'm tired he said at the very heart of me it was an accurate and innocent diagnosis of the very trouble that was brewing in him and that would only become evident a year later an illness at the heart of him that hurried him out of life. Somebody, in trying to get him to agree to Broadway, had pointed out to him that Jessica Tandy, then in her 80s, was doing a show on Broadway which involved dancing. I'm not sure I can repeat what he said to that, but it was (laughs) blunt. I absolutely understood, but I was relieved when he later agreed to the shorter run at BAM, just from a selfish nappies and baby food point of view. Donald was delighted that the play had made money for us and he exulted eventually in coming to our new house in Greystones and to have his dinner with us, spuds and smoked mackerel being his elected menu. He truly visibly exulted He knew he had effected something life-changing and signal for us, and it seemed to give him the deepest satisfaction. He always said wondrous things about the play in interviews, though he did them rarely in interview mode. He was like a hermit asked to leave the skellig of the actual production and come to the mainland to talk about it. But it was not really about the play or the performance even, or your place in the theatre, or the this and that of prizes and aftermath for me. It was really about having that man at one end of the story coming down into our flat, and then at the other end of the story sitting at the table in our new house, which he had willy-nilly provided while he ate his mackerel with the untoward relish of the just. I seemed to be with him a lot, and felt very bound to him, laced into him, connected now by strange cables. I was somewhat aware of the dark misdemeanors of his drinking days, but it was hard not to revere and love him. And sober, indeed, he did seem to have a sort of saintly atmosphere around him. Saintly is not quite the right word, perhaps, but it was as if he was being written now by Homer rather than O'Casey. Perhaps that is even less precise, but I felt there was something properly inexplicable about him, something immense and beyond the human, like those brooding landscapes described in Conrad's fiction. Even his courtesy, The courtesy of a man only too capable of utterly crushing remarks was formidable. I would shake my head at the mystery of Donald often and often. All throughout this hour of talking to you, I have labored to present him to you, to remind you of him, to place him here again, all present and correct. Some of you will have known him better than I did and worked with him longer. I haven't said enough about his photography, his drawing, his love of the horses, a thousand things, and much to my surprise, I have confined myself to talking of life and spurned other searing memories of his last days. My first title was actually Death of an Actor, but... Life! It was life he wanted in the upshot. He lives permanently in his roles on film, especially Bob Quinn's and most especially as Gabriel Conroy in John Huston's film of Joyce's the Dead, but his ineluctable greatness on stage is inevitably being lost as the 200 performances of a play are obliged to fade people attest that they will never forget him in Faith Healer, in O'Casey's Juno, but nonetheless they cannot bequeath their memories. We can only write them down in a shadowy record of once highly charged corporeal things. Donald himself felt part of the honour of the theatre was that it is such a ruthlessly temporal affair, being only of the moment and paradoxically its eternity consisting of that, an empty theatre in the darkness, content to host its silent shadows, not to be tainted with pretending otherwise perhaps. He refused to film the steward in any shape or form and was content in almost a religious way that his work would be seen, but then gradually be unseen, seen backwards, receding erased, removed. I suppose there are mysteries and alchemies in the theatre we hesitate to give credence to as being fanciful but at the end of the play on the few nights I saw it it was quite clear to me he was no longer Donal as such. Whoever he was staring there in the dying light having told his last story to his son on the bed and finally his son turning towards him and letting his smaller arm fall across his father, both of them rescued into sleep or something deeper. It wasn't really Donald. Even the face looked different, darker, other. I suppose he has sim- simply become Thomas. His favourite time in the play was just after that, when the audience would make, not a sound, sometimes for minutes, no sound, no sound, then slowly as if coming back themselves into the shocking present, as if awakening from the dream of Donal's making, risking a few tentative claps, as if maybe they feared they were not in a theatre after all, but in some other realm of human truth and tattered majesty, where making the usual noises of approbation, the gathering applause and cheering might be a violation. This was all Donald's work, ultimately, and that was accepted by all. On his final performance in the play at BAM in New York, having steadfastly refused previously ever to step forward from the line of actors at the curtain call in old Abbey Theatre style, on this one night he did, and not only stepped forward, but stepped down into the auditorium, where the audience parted like running mercury, like a tiny red sea. And he walked forward to stand at the centre of them, not changing his expression, glaring as serious as Sophocles, not acknowledging them quiet, but radiantly present with them, transmuting in, this mom- in those moments from the beautiful relict of an ancient man that he had played for two hours, that Thomas, into this democratic colossus, this actor of actors, this Donal. And the audience instinctively acknowledged him, with an unrestrained crescendo of applause, not only for his performance but for this overwhelming manifestation of his mysterious self and the primacy of theatre as the unrepentant enemy of time. And it was like the most beautiful and just full stop ever marked on a manuscript, a wordless summing up and an immutable final word. And that was the last performance he ever gave in a theater eternally. And I would call that the mercy of fathers when the love that lies in them deeply, like the glittering face of a well, is betrayed by an emergency, and the child sees at last that he is loved, loved and needed, and not to be lived without, and greatly. Thank you.